I've made my way across to the AW building and I'm here talking to, there seems to be a lot of hardware hacking section. Well, that, this is kind of what the hardware hacking section. I'm going to talk to Paul. What, where are you from? I'm from the UK. Um, I work for Intel and I, uh, I'm employed by them to work on the Octo project. So, so the Octo project is kind of a bunch of commercial uh, vendors uh, from silicon and software that are involved in the embedded Linux uh, sphere coming together to, to uh, work with the Open Embedded project on really the core of their build system. So basically Open Embedded is a system that allows you to cross-build um, the Linux kernel, bootloader, all of your applications and put that together into an image that you can flash onto an embedded device. So anything from a phone to an to a, a air conditioning control system to something industrial or um, you know, a development board, whatever it is. that you Running Intel devices, I guess. I'm sorry? Running Intel chips, I imagine. Uh, Intel's just one of the, 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 the platforms. I mean, we support everything from x86 to ARM, MIPS, PowerPC. So um, because we're using GCC, so anything that GCC can build for, we can support. So I'm just looking at your uh, banner here. It says Open Embedded is a non, not-for-profit organization for your one recipe to build thousands of packages embedded on your devices, deployed to your users, forget about in nitty-gritty details. That sounds wonderful. Uh, Eureka, Texas Instruments are also involved in this. They would be a competitor, I guess. Definitely. In fact, that's one of the interesting things for me, uh, working on this project from a silicon vendor. There's not quite a number of other silicon vendors involved. And, but, you know, the, 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 uh, the big corporations may be sort of competing in terms of their products, but all of the stuff that we work on is stuff that, that we don't need to differentiate on, right? We don't want to compete on the version of GREP that we offer in, in our systems, right? It makes much more sense for us to, to sit together and, and, and work together on those parts. Okay, so I'm, I'm looking here at the table. Can you? Uh, I'll take some photos as well for in the show notes. You can give me a rundown of, of what I'm seeing here. Certainly. So uh, start here on the left. We've got an, an Odroid uh, uh, platform with an external uh, display, uh, and that's that's a Samsung uh, ARM platform. So that'll be a, a little box, uh, slightly bigger than a deck of cards. I see an SD card going in, a power supply. On the back, there's four USB hubs, network connection, nothing here. And then there's loads of stringy wires coming out to a tablet. Yes. So it's just running some DirectFB graphical demos. So. It's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah. I'm sorry? It's pretty impressive. Oh, well, yes. Um, well, it looks like a waterfall, actually. <laughs> so, so, so the next thing is uh, we've got an Intel Galileo development board. So um, it's x86 compatible, 32-bit um, device kind of designed for sort of wearables and, and uh, deeply embedded type applications. Uh, it's, it's got an Arduino shield compatibility, so you can you take a, an, an Arduino shield and, and plug that on top. And does it support, how then do you uh, copy across your sketches for that? Uh, you can use the Arduino IDE to, to develop it, just as you would with any other Arduino board. So. Okay, and so what's the advantage of that then over running an Arduino Uno or something? Well, um, you, you have got a, like, a, it's, it's a proper processor with, a, with an MMU, so it can actually run a full Linux distribution. It's, it's not maybe as constrained as some of the Arduino platforms that, that, that are available. So you can do a little bit more with it. Okay, so something like that, uh, is this directly competing with something like the Raspberry Pi or something like that? Um, I guess so. I mean, obviously, 
the, the Raspberry Pi doesn't have that Arduino sort of plug-on compatibility, but um, it's it's of the same order, I guess. I think you could probably argue it would be more for a professional, uh, you know, where to be running off physical devices based on this rather than have it powering it by a Raspberry Pi. Sure, yeah. I mean, I guess... Uh, the, the strength of our platform is that you can you can build for any of these devices, right? And and, and reasonably easy sort of move your your your. Um, you may prototype on one platform and then move across to another for your production. So. Okay, and this Galileo, how much is that? Uh, I believe it's uh, sixty nine USD. So. That's not bad actually. And then you uh, you could develop on one device, bring your Arduinos over, uh, your Arduino shields over, and then. Uh, with that. Okay, cool. Moving on. Yeah, so this is the Minnow board. This is uh, an Intel Atom-based platform. So uh, it's got a little bit more power than, than Galileo, and uh, it's, it's got a lot more sort of uh, standard ports that you would expect on, on that kind of uh, thing. So extra USB, uh, you've got audio and HDMI uh, graphics, so, you, uh, so you've got a, a, an actual GPU on the, on the, the chip there. And is the drivers for that open? Uh, so the, the drivers, it's a power VR core, so, so the, the drivers that we supply for 3D acceleration are, are proprietary. Um, dun, dun, dun. Well, there, there is in fact a, a, an open source uh, t- uh, 2D acceleration driver, which has been worked on by a, a guy in the community, so, um, so we do have that. Um, I, I, that's an unfair kicking because even the, even the Raspberry Pi, they have a proprietary uh, board as well, or are not open the graphics yeah. um, apart, apart from that the the entire uh, design of the board the bill of the materials everything you would need to build your own board um, obviously other than the components themselves are you know completely open source so if, if you wanted to take this platform customize it for your application uh, have it produced you, you could do that um, well, where's the advantage for Intel in doing that other than the components are Intel components I guess uh, get it, just getting the, the device in people's hands, really, to let them play around and, and work out, you know, interesting things to do with it. A rising tide raises all ships, I guess. Okay, moving on. What's the next thing? So, we have... Um, now, I know a little bit less about these, but... Um, so, this is like an industrial uh, computer. I think, I think it's used in uh, vehicles for... Um, for laying cables, so they, they when they're drilling, they want they need to make sure that they they are on a straight line. So uh, so this is the the control uh, computer that's used in in those kinds of applications. So it's an ARM-based platform, has a, a sort of just five buttons that you can you can press to interact with stuff that's on the screen. So it's really simple for sort of uh, contractors or whatever doing those kinds of. Yeah, I was with gloves, and the the buttons are uh, waterproofed, and it. It looks quite rugged, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Oh, I see a little uh, command prompt over here on this device. What's this? Um, this, this is a Toshiba uh, development board. Uh, it's, it's slightly older, running a Toshiba ARM uh, chip on it. Um, and it's got a built-in little LCD display, which is quite cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those all-in-one type development boards. You can, it's got everything on it, so you can start developing your application. What next? Ah, so so here we have the the Ouya uh, console. Um, so uh, oh, it's tiny. Typically, it's a supplied has Android on it, but uh, we now have some support uh, in a in a in a some community add-on layer that that provides you the ability to build for this platform. So. 
So with Open Embedded? Yeah, with Open Embedded, yes. So what is Open Embedded exactly? It's a, where can I go? What's the website? So you can go to openembedded.org. Um, from there, you can get information about how to get started, all of uh, how to access our mailing lists and uh, uh, all that sort of information, everything you would need to know. So. Okay, fantastic. And, um, I, yeah, okay, cool. Okay, uh, are there any other devices of interest here? or? Uh, we've got uh, a couple of, of demos uh, of, of um, Internet of Things. So um, there's a demo here in the middle. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure of the details. Uh, I think that he's been having some technical problems getting started. You know how it is with demos at shows. Um, so uh, using a Beagle Bone Black. Um, so obviously Beagle Bone Black is an ARM-based board with, with, with lots of IOs. So... Um, so again, that's that's quite a sort of a common target for open embedded. Um, and right on the end here, we have an example of a uh, commercial product that's being developed using open embedded. So it's a, if you can get more details from Alex on the end here, but it's basically a system for um, kind of getting a measurement of the occupancy of a building for sort of larger companies who have a lot of uh, buildings that they need to manage. They need to determine whether they're fully utilized. So this system will um, tell you if, if particular people are in the office, where they are. Um, you can get statistics out of it. Uh, you can book meetings through it, and it'll manage the meeting rooms for you, that sort of thing. So. Well, pretty cool. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Paul, for taking the time. And uh, enjoy the rest of the show. No problem. Thank you. Hi everybody, this is Ken and we're over in the AW building, I think, and BS, is it free BSD? That's BSD, uh, it's an all BSD booth, because uh, all BSDs like uh, free BSD, PC BSD, NetBSD, uh, and partly OBSD, they group together at events like uh, FOSNEM and they do combined booths. That is very cooperative you, you would think from hearing what goes on in mailing lists and stuff that you all hate each other uh, no 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 uh, uh, we like each other and uh, we regard as a um, uh, BSD family member okay. we have a fly here BSD family uh, we have uh, one kid that's uh, that doesn't behave uh, that well <laughs> I don't want to go into details. Yes, he likes fruit. <laughs> yes. Okay, so um, just for the one or two listeners who don't know what BSD is, can you tell us what it is? Uh, uh, you ma- might know uh, Unix was founded uh, in 1968 uh, at uh, MIT. Uh, Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie uh, developed um, starting exactly from 1966 and then from 1968 uh, beginning... Uh, there was uh, C, and then there was uh, Unix. The first release was, uh, official release was 1971 from Unix, and six people started to do a free development of Unix, because uh, development of Unix in the early uh, beginnings was uh, controlled by um, corporations. Uh, corporations like AT&T, and uh, they provided uh, Unix to the universities, but uh, people wanted to have a free software. And then in 1973, six people started to develop their own free Unix. 
and the first release was in April 1975, and that was that was the beginning of BSD. And uh, over years, uh, BSD uh, was divided into parts like FreeBSD, NetBSD, OpenBSD, and Dragonfly BSD, as we now know. Well, um, what would you say the strong points of the various different BSDs are? Uh, three or four points. The, uh, we have an um, extremely liberal license. We have uh, a central development. Uh, we have a community uh, that's contributing, not companies, not that much, like in the in the Linux world. We have companies that support, but not that much. It's, it's more f a free development. Okay. And which BSD would you run at home, for instance? <laughs> Most of the BSD guys run every BSD. Okay. I started with NetBSD, yeah. then I switched to FreeBSD. I was the founder of Desktop BSD, but uh, mainly I uh, use FreeBSD. Okay. But that's only for practical reasons. There's no political or most BSD guys use the BSD that's suited best for their needs. And if you're developing code on one of the BSDs for yeah. one of the BSDs, yeah. is it portable? Is it going to run on the other ones? Sure, sure. And will it also run on Linux? Yeah. As, uh, normally, you, you, sh you should uh, code portable. At least between the BSDs and better for all Unix, Unix systems. I think there's a moral of that story for everybody yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, there was some legal issues uh, at one stage which probably caused people to move to, the, uh, to, to Linux over, yeah. over BSD. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? History? Yes. Uh, in 1991, AT&T uh, claimed uh, that uh, BSD has, had misused... Uh, legal property of AT&T, uh, BSD denied, and there was um, two or two two and a half years uh, was a bit, a, a bit of uh, confuse, confusion, and before uh, finishing that that uh, lawsuit, uh, AT&T and BSD uh, came uh, together and decided there were six files they had to change. We did that within some weeks, and that was the end of that uh, lawsuit. Okay, and it was put to bed after that. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people would cite, I mean, you really can't tell the difference between a BST and, and a Linux machine if, if you're on, unless you have to look for yeah. it. Um, some would even say it's a purer version of Unix. Yes, sure. But from what I've seen, the, the most when talking to BST users, the philosophy is mostly the license. Yes. Can you talk to us a little bit of yeah. the difference in the license and why yeah. you might choose a BST license? Yeah, sure. And why it might be more free than yeah. the GPL? Yeah. Uh, starting uh, with uh, year 1975, uh, people thought about uh, using the shortest license possibly. They started with uh, four sentences. Then uh, that was kept to three. And now we are at two sentences. And that's enough. And we want to have maybe one sentence should be enough. And what does that sentence say? Uh, do whatever uh, what you want, but uh, please don't sue us. Okay. And keep our name in there. Yeah, that's all. Okay. Um, have you... I'm you're, recently there's been a push to, to develop your own compiler, and there's been some controversy, obviously, about that. 
Uh, no, there, there was not, not a controversy about that. Uh, it happened that um, uh, that a new compiler uh, arised uh, with uh, a lot of uh, advantages over the, the the old GCC that's a bit bloated. Uh, that's not GCC's fault uh, in it, but uh, GCC supports a lot of, of platforms. A lot of platforms old, not often uh, used, uh, etc. And uh, we now have uh, an alternative that's better. It's faster. It can comp it can compile comp uh, code that is more compact than GCC. So why don't use why don't we use that compiler? Competition is always good, yeah. and, and that's licensed under the BSD, obviously. That's that's uh, under licensing of BSD, but that's that's not the main point. Because we have BSDs like NetBSD, uh, they're using the latest GCC with GPL version three. Uh, I thought there was, there was going to be some compatibility issues with. BSD. Uh, the, the problem is the NetBSD supports fifty-seven different uh, platforms. Yeah. And GCC is the only compiler that supports the old platforms like okay. MicroVex and, and stuff like that. So, so it runs on my fridge. Yeah, NetBSD has to use the latest GPL version 3 uh, GCC compiler. Okay. There's no alternative because, because CLang uh, uh, and LLVM support only uh, eight platforms now. Okay. Maybe that will rise to 10 or 12 or 14, but they will not develop. CCC, uh, LLVM for old platforms, no longer produced for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no, no alternative for, for NetBSD. Yeah. Have there been any other developments in the BSD world that, uh, you know, new and upcoming things? Uh, FreeBSD especially, we have a new release, FreeBSD 10.0. We have to switch from GCC to LLVM CLang. But we have uh, also no, m m uh, new platforms like Raspberry. That's uh, brand, yeah. That's absolute brand new, four weeks or five weeks old, and uh, we have a completely new uh, port system that's completely revamped now with a lot of improvements uh, because we we were a bit behind uh, Debian and uh, DPM, and now we uh, are glad after. Four, four and a half years, we have a new completely port system that's ports and G, new generation, and that's uh, cool, cool stuff. And is that is it easy to install software? Yeah. Ah, so I wanted to install, I don't know, Firefox yeah. or a web browser on there. What would I need to do? Uh, you you uh, browse the ports directory. Yeah. Uh, you uh, need to get the latest uh, index, yeah. and then you go to the directory. And you only inst install it, and that's it. But you're downloading the source code, and the source yeah. code is compiling as yeah. opposed to downloading. Or, or, or you can can use a package. So there are pre-compiled packages as well. Yeah. But that's management imports as well. Yeah. Okay. We have we have uh, the largest collection of free uh, software. Now we have uh, twenty-four thousand eight hundred ports. Whoa. Yes. Uh, Twenty twenty-four thousand eight hundred ports with source code. And of that, 22,600 packages. Wow, that's you wow. cannot build each port into a package because of legal issues. Okay. Uh, that's not under our control. Okay, so, but do you have, uh, are there any obvious gaping holes 
like for example Flash was missing on uh, no no vision. no that's long 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 ago Flash is available uh, for, for years uh, it's absolutely no problem so I could run an entire desktop yes PCSD yes without any problem With, without any problem you heard it here folks yeah and if I have any problem, I know who to we go have, to now. We had we had some problems in the past because uh, Linux was uh, uh, in front of uh, sound. Yeah. Now we we, we uh, have better sound than, than Linux. It's much easier to use uh, sound than in Linux. Way easier. You're not using pulse audio. Yeah. yeah, we don't have any pulse audio <laughs> and stuff like that. Okay. And uh, let me see. And you can you can update any machine, and it's running after that okay. update. And if you have a machine that's running for say two or three years, is it is it viable to do an update on that? Sure. We have, in FreeBSD you have FreeBSD update. Yeah. Uh, you can even use that uh, uh, on a, on a weekly or, or monthly basis if you like. You can do a cron job, as I do. I update my machines automatically uh, every four weeks, and if something would go wrong, it never happened. Now, I would do a a, a, a drop back yeah. to the previous set, and it's absolutely no problem. Okay. Updating FreeBSD is so easy; it's easier than any Debian or any Linux I know. Yes, I may uh, I may be holding you to those words. As time goes on. I will show you. Is there anything else that uh, I? you want to talk to us about or have I missed? Uh, no. We had a lot of work to do with, with uh, compiler bases because uh, when we started to use LLVM and CLang, uh, from the then t uh, 23 or 22,000 ports, only eight or 9,000 worked. Yeah. Now we have uh, uh, done a tremendous work the last two or three years uh, to, to uh, put that numbers up to 24,800 and now uh, we can use 99.2% of all uh, old applications. Have you found that, uh, have you found that any of the um, people have shrugged off the BSDs, uh, you know, the fact that it didn't compile, well I'm not going to worry because it compiled with GCC? Uh, no, we had, we had, we had no, none. Problem is, we have not run up uh, to the full, full potential of uh, LLVM CLang because we have parts that are old, really old. The link, the linker, we switched make to bmake, but we have the old linker, we have no uh, pre-optimization uh, in the linker, and that's missing. We, we can do a lot better. It's 20 or 30% of the performance gain we are expecting from switching to LLVM ceiling is not there yet. We have more work to do. Uh, we are faster now than with GCC, but we can do 20 or 30% better. Oh, and that's wow. our goal. That's going to be impressive. Yeah. That'll really put the uh, smoke over to the GCC yeah, guys. That, we are now maybe 5 to 10% uh, faster than GCC, but we want to be 30 or 40% faster. Okay, that's that going to benefit everybody yeah, all around. That will last at least uh, three or four years. Are you, uh, could I take then binaries? Uh, can I use this on a Linux-based uh, system to compile binaries for a Linux-based system? Uh, no, not yet. It's not yet. Purely, uh, is purely, there purely BSD. You need a complete two-chain yeah. to do that, and that that's so difficult to change uh, parts of that yeah. because the, the effects are 
tremendous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you do stuff like uh, the Raspberry Pi is not the most powerful device in the world. Uh, Can yes. you do cross compiling for the Raspberry uh, Pi? We are working now on that. Uh, that will, will be finished uh, end of the year. Yeah. We're now, now working then um, because uh, from the 24,800 parts, they are not built yet. Okay. We are working on that and it will be finished in October, November, December. Is there anything else that I... Uh, the, the guy uh, working on it, that's Baptiste right over there. Okay. That's the guy working on that cool. thing. Yeah, everybody, the actual people working on projects are yeah. awesome. If, if, uh, if anything happened, a comet fell on this yeah. uh, area... All the, all, the guys, all the guys are here working on, on, that, on that task. It will be the way to get rid of... Uh, next next FOSTEM, we have planned yeah. uh, to sell those uh, raspberries which we have here at the booth one to yeah. show. Next year you can buy them. You can buy SD cards with FreeBSD on it and the ports on it. So you plug in your SD card in your Asprey, uh, uh, or in any other similar machine, yeah. and then you're ready, and that's it. Or you can download a complete image, yeah. put it on an SD card or any other flash device you have, and then you're ready. And that's it. Fantastic stuff. Yeah. Have I missed anything else in the interview? No, I, I don't think so. You're also here with the uh, SSH guys. Yes. There, there seems to be a close relationship between BSD and SSH. Yeah. Can you tell us the history of that? Um, OpenSSH started as a sub-project from uh, OpenBSD, yeah. uh, like OpenNTP, like OpenCVS uh, and stuff like that. Uh, after years, people are a bit segregated between OpenBSD and OpenSSH. Yeah. Uh, the guys now working on OpenSSH are only a small part of it are the old OpenBSD guys. Yeah. Most of the guys are from uh, came from other projects, from Linux, from whatever. Yeah, I think you got to have a feel for yeah. for that sort of yeah. thing. From, from the developers, only my, my, maybe 20 or 30% from the now OpenSSH developers are old OpenBSD guys. Okay. Your mascot is the devil. Uh, no, it's not a devil. It's a looks, demon. It looks like the devil. Mm, why, don't no. you, why do you hate Jesus? <laughs> we don't hate Jesus. I, um, have you had any problems? I know you've had some... Uh, I'm, I'm being a bit... Uh, I know you've had some issues. Some people going yeah. to conferences uh, that they've been asconded. Have you had any issue with that? No, not, 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 in, not in Europe. No, okay, not in Europe. Cool. Um, people are laughing a lot. Um, listen, Hacker Public Radio is, a, is a, always looking for shows, so if yeah. ever you want to come yeah. on, uh, yeah. either to get interviewed or if you want yeah. to do your own show, yeah. feel free to do it for us. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. okay. I'll see you next year. Yeah, I'll be there and I'm waiting for you. My name is Cvetan Uzunov. I'm from Olimex, Bulgaria. Okay, and you're a company here at uh, FOSDEM. Yeah, we are first time here, like, exhibitor at FOSDEM. And you were saying that you uh, are sponsoring a... Yeah, it's a hardware hackathon. We, we want to show the people who are mostly from software development that it's not very hard to, to, to deal with hardware and to solve their boards and to see that they work. Yeah. And here we, we, we have a different demo codes with this board playing Pong game or... Uh, changing color of RGB LED with the Wii Nunchuk. Uh, there is a TV remote control you can see. I can yeah. distantly monitor. And there is a temperature meter. You, you can measure the temperature with the thermocouple with the same small teeny board. 
Okay, hold on. So you've got this little tiny board shaped like a penguin. Yes. You've got hackers with soldering irons, which is always a dangerous thing. Yes, yes. And they're soldering up the boards. And how much are the boards? Uh, the boards are free. You're giving the boards away? Yes, yes. We're giving the boards away here. They, because we have some limited space, yeah. they just have to wait somebody to stand up so they sit and solder their own board. So if you solder the board, you get to keep the board? Yes, yes, and yes. the board is actually an Arduino board, is it? Exactly. You can, you can work with the Arduino IDE. You can program it. it. They have bootloader. They have programming, blinking, LED. So everybody can check his board. If it's working here, you can, you can see what smile they will have on their faces when they see that actually they did something by themselves. It's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Um, we're promoting on Hacker Public Radio. We've had a soldering two episodes by Mr. X on soldering, which actually work. So this is a this is a good thing. Yeah. The main key is not to hold the hot end. I understand. Yeah, it's it's very easy you know, to to solder the stuff. We specially made this board with the with the components which are easy to solder. We we was talking that yesterday about 100 boards were soldered and all of them were working. So. That is pretty good, actually. No, no damage board. And this is for beginners who never touch soldering iron. I went to uh, one of our earlier interviews. I was over at the OpenStreetMap project, and they showed me this device. Yeah. Can you tell me what that is? This is open-source hardware Linux computer. And it, made by your company? Yes, okay. yes. We, we, we make everything public with the cut sources, so everybody can study how it's done, uh, modify create his own board based on this design and even sold, sell it. So, uh, How much are you selling that board for? This is 30 euro board. And what do I get on it? You get a Cortex-A8 processor with 1 gigahertz, yeah. 512 megabytes of DDR RAM, you have SATA, yeah. you have HDMI, native Ethernet, two USB ports and uh, lithium polymer charger. So, you don't need uh, expensive UPS. You can create server with just single small battery, and it will run for hours. Like this one, you see? Yeah. I'll, pictures is, of this will be in the show notes. Okay. Uh, this one is a double core device. Yeah. It's slightly and, larger. Yeah. yeah. It has one terabyte of hard drive. A little laptop uh, hard disk underneath, uh, connected with a serial. Yeah. Yeah. It consumes only 2 watts of energy. 2 watts? Yeah, so you wow. can make a Tor server or a torrent server for your pictures or movies or something and put it 24-7 and it will consume only 2 watts. And w one of the issues that I've had with the Raspberry Pi has been the reliability. I can't run it for 24-7. Uh, Does your device have any of those this issues? Device, this device has no... USB to Ethernet converter. The, the Ethernet is native. The USB hosts and everything is designed carefully. So th there are not the problems with the Raspberry Pi when you connect many things on the USB ports and it syncs. And, and you can run for hours from lithium polymer battery. So it's a it's a it's a regular connector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, what sort of devices have you are you powering here? I see this here. There's a little strip of a yeah, LED of lights. It's a demo. It's a pong game. It's a different. We just wanted to show what is possible to do with this small board, and yeah. and all these demo projects are put on the website, so people who solder the board can download the demo codes, see the libraries. What uh, I'm seeing the um yeah, this is A20 board. 
running two two LCDs. Yeah, one okay. is running Debian, you can see, yeah. and one is running Android. Oh, okay, cool. Yes, and the video players here use totally open source drivers. So the video accelerator here is made by the open source community. It has no binary blobs. It it 100%, 100% Richard Stallman approved. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, are you Richard Stallman approved? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he knows about our existence. <laughs> he might do after this. Well, what are the of stuff? Course, it it yeah. is still in the very beginning. It su supports only MP3 and MP4 formats, but there is a Linux Sensei community which is working to to open everything on these chips yeah. and everything to be without binary blood with a vanilla kernel and uh, yeah. And it's running uh, Big Buck Bunny without any problem whatsoever. From what and the whole table is full of those little penguin devices yes, uh, yes, running. Yes. On the table next to that, what, what have the we got? The next table is for our college. Cyril may, may talk. They're from hackable devices from France. Yeah. They're just separate boots. Okay. So I don't cool know stuff. Listen, um, I'll put a link to the show notes, link to all this in the show notes. Do you need any help or assistance from the hacker community? Uh, any help is uh, welcome. So. How are you? Uh, so I could take the designs for this and just make it myself. How are you making money? Yeah, well, uh, it, the open source. Many people think that when they open their work, and nobody will uh, start will buy from them. Everybody will start doing it by themselves. But I think in other way, when you do open source hardware, you don't have competitor, and you don't have just customer. You have collaborator because. Whoever get this design, and if he makes something better or improve it, he uh, he he, uh, he send it's it back. back to you, yeah. So basically, open source hardware uh, help us to make better products. You yeah. know, and and this is bigger benefit from this that somebody will copy your design because somebody will copy your design even if it's closed source and. We have example for this. There, are, there are some chi Chinese companies which make similar boards, and everything there is closed source. But when they become successful in three or four months, they start being copied by other Chinese companies. So, what is your advantage if you're closed source? Two or three months. Yeah. We just skip this. Yeah. And then anybody <laughs> you make improvements. And our customers appreciate because they have better documentation. They can see everything. They can learn something new, and basically, you educate your environment and and uh, helping each other. Somebody has uh, said that uh, if you have one apple and other has one apple, you exchange them. You both have one apple. If you have one idea, other has one idea. You exchange. Everybody has two ideas. Very good. So this is the the best part of the open source. Uh, you exchange your expertise. For instance, we, we know hardware, but we are not Linux experts. There are many people who know Linux. They help us. We help them to understand the hardware. They help us to understand Linux. So for these two years, we learned a lot uh, out of this project. Yeah. And this is also valuable. Perfect, perfect. Is there anything else that you want to uh, share or have we covered everything? Uh, I'm going to go take some photos of this okay. and thank you very much for okay. uh, the talk.
Hi everybody, this is uh, Ken. We're down in the W something building. AW. AW building, not the WC building, which I was going no. to say. That would be somewhere <laughs> entirely different. And I'm at the Pandora table talking to Michiel. Exactly, yes. Hello. So tell us, what is the Pandora table? What, what, what are you doing here? What is it? Well, the Pandora basically is a mixture between a gaming console and a mini PC. Yep. So it has about the size of the Nintendo DS, has gaming controls and a full keyboard in there, and is running, of course, Linux. What type of Linux? Um, right now it's a version of Open Embedded, um, because we only have 512 megabytes of storage in there. Um, but for all the files you want to have, there are two SD card slots, so you can put in right now 512 gigabyte of uh, additional storage if you like yeah. and it's a very optimized version which supports our hardware but it's based on open embedded okay so it's a uh, size of a little lunchbox i guess and it's got a small phone screen that you might see on a, on a is that a touch screen or not that's a touch screen yeah okay we've got a touch screen but we also got analog controls which can be used for games or also for mouse usage was this the did you do a kickstarter or a fundraiser for this uh no because kickstarter didn't exist when we started with the project that was back in 2007 2008 yeah. and it was financed with um, pre-orders then we had a lot of issues because we've never done something like this before and, well, now it's available for, I think, about two years since 2012, uh, right from stock, because we solved all the production issues and production run is now stable. And, yeah, well, I'm working on the successor now, right now as well. Okay, do you have any prototypes of that available? The successor, yeah, you can see it right there. Um, it, it's, it looks it's, a bit naked at the moment. Yeah, right. The case is not finished yet. It's just a bare PCB uh, connected to an EVM. Yep. Um, but I just got it this week. We just started with uh, the development. Um, but as uh, the development block will be open, so everybody can follow how will such a device be designed and exist. Um, that's why we start from the very early stages to the final product. And what you can see is one of the early stages, but you can already see how fast the CPU will be. So the original device has got a, it's about an inch thick, I suppose, when it's closed, a little less. Yeah. It's got a full QWERTY keyboard, um, a... D-pad, gaming D -pad. controls, yeah. I don't play games that much, <laughs> as you can tell. So what would I use this thing for? Well, a lot of people use it for playing games, for retro games, up to PlayStation, Nintendo DS, something like that. For all the Linux games that are out there, or the interpreters like Jedi Knight, Quake, Doom, all that stuff. Um, but of course you can also use it for internet, web surfing, emailing, uh, you can run LibreOffice on it. And Well, that's where the D-pad is handy, because the D-pad actually are the cursor keys as well. Um, so if you're doing some uh, scripting, compiling, coding, or uh, just working on a document in LibreOffice, you've got the cursor keys, and the buttons function is page up and page down, so it's also optimized for working. So, yeah, basically you can do anything with it. Use it to administer server, play some games in between, whatever you like. And what, kind of, what sort of connectivity has it got? Um, well, it has Wi-Fi built-in, yeah. um, two SD card slots, it's mentioned, and uh, we also have a normal full-size USB port, so you can connect any USB device, hard disk, USB stick directly to the system and copy it over. You, you could connect a hard disk and run some rescue tools to rescue data from a defective hard disk. Okay, cool. Can you, can you connect it up to a HDMI screen or something like that? Uh, HDMI not yet because the old version from 2008 was before HDMI was really popular. Um, but you can connect it to an analog TV out. Yeah. Um, but the new version will also have an HDMI out, which is what is currently connected to a monitor as you can see here. I'll, uh, I'll have a look. So what, with the new device, 
what are we seeing connected? There's a board and then a separate board. Will they be sandwiched one on top of the other in the final device? Yes, of course. The final device will be basically the same as we have on the Open Pandora, just with updated hardware yeah. and a slightly updated case. So we'll have 3G optionally in there. We have a backlit keyboard, uh, HDMI out, a new processor and stuff like that. That's all on the new unit. So, yeah, it's... Um Yeah, so be, uh, if you're into gaming and if you uh, need to do re remote support with a QWERTY keyboard, you're set to go. So how did you get involved in this project? How did you wake up one morning and decide to, to produce essentially a Linux PC? Well, I always was a fan of uh, things that not a big company with a huge financial uh, funding has, but things that are putting together by a community which just are motivated to do things which is what Linux is all about yeah. uh, and I'm always, since I was a little kid I always loved computer games um, so there were open source handhelds out there and originally I just was reselling them in Germany because nobody wanted to import them and I wanted to have those Linux gaming devices out in Germany as well and then at one time one of the other distributors had the idea let's create something like that ourselves He was crazy enough to start it. I would have never done it. I have to admit that. Uh, but then I got involved, was mainly taking care of the community. And since 2012, I uh, am organizing the full production run. And, well, yeah, that's now my second main job, basically. Do you get a lot of help from um, hardware hackers in the community? Um, not from hardware hackers, but because the product basically is already finished. Yeah. Uh, but from software developers, the community is really, really great. And also the successor, what it has included, is also based on ideas coming from the community. They have the Pandora, and they told us, well, it would be nice to have this and that as well. And then we are looking to if we can include it in a future revision. Cool. Fantastic stuff. So the future is the next version. When do you expect that to be running? Um, I'm going to have to hold you to this. You know? Yeah, that's the hardest question. And we had a lot of issues with the Pandora, so we learned to not give out any release dates, any concrete ones. Um, what we have is we've got the block open, so you can follow the development and then, well, you can guess how long it will still take. And, of course, we gathered a lot of experience with the, with the first device, and we have now reliable companies who are producing that. So it will be a lot faster. The, we will finish it a lot faster than the Pandora, but we can't give out exact details yet because, well, it depends on so many things. Um, sometimes um, it takes um, 12 weeks or 14 weeks just to get the parts. And um, how much are these devices? And can you, uh, will we be able to pre-order those? Um, not yet. The pre-order will just uh, go online where, as soon as we have finished prototypes, so with casing and everything finished. And the current Pandora is, well, it starts for 250 euro for a smaller unit with uh, less RAM and uh, less CPU power, up to 500 euro for the 1 gigahertz version. Cool stuff. And uh, can you tell us about the sister project, the ecosystem? Well, yeah, um, there are more open source systems using the OMAP 3. That's, for example, the GTA 04, yeah. um, which is basically uh, a PCB for the old OpenMoco phone yeah. or for the GTA 02, where you just replace the PCB and then have a faster and new updated uh, CPU as well. Oh, I've heard about this, actually, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, How is that related to the Pandora project? Well, the one who designs the Pyra board right now is the same designer who made the GTA 04. Uh -huh. And he also helped me moving the full production to Germany. So I've been in contact with him. And uh, he's also working on a new project right now, which is the Neo 900. And the Neo 900 will be a PCB, which will go into the old Nokia N900 phone, which will also have an updated processor. Is that, is that a useful project for him? Is there anyone really doing that? Or oh. are we just hackers here? 
I think it is useful for everybody who owns an N900. I've got three N900 because two of them uh, had the USB port broken, which is a common issue on the N900. And now I've got the case, I've got the shell, I've got the screen and everything. All I need to do is get the new PCB replacement and I've got a new phone already. Is there anything else that I missed in the, in the interview? I don't think so. I think you, we probably mentioned it everything. Okay, super duper. Thanks very much and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. You're welcome. You too. Thanks. Okay, hi, this is Ken. I've just finished downstairs in the K building, the WAW building, and now I'm upstairs at the K building at Fostem 2014. And the first suckers to get, <laughs> to get conned into an interview are the guys on the polyphone boat. Who are you? Uh, I'm Christoph Simonis. I'm Hugo. And uh, what are you doing at the Python booth? Uh, I'm promoting. So, hold on, one step back. What's Python? So, Python is a general purpose programming language used in a many different domains from web, from web services to uh, scientific applications. Um, and. It likes tabs. It can do a lot of things so easily. We can do uh, sysadministration also with it. Uh, you can do graphical application. You can make games also. So, For, so I think a lot of people, everybody listening to Hackerbot with Radio know what Python is. We've had Python series on on how to program. So um, why, is, why do you think Python and Perl have such strong communities? Well, I think that Python, the emphasis on readability and on good principle of Python, the Zen of Python, is a very strong force of the language. Yeah. Uh, together with its good bindings in C, good C libraries, which make it very performant, which means that it's usually more performant to do something in OpenCV or doing scientific computation using Python and C libraries than using other languages like Java, where the whole stack is uh, working in the virtual machine. You seem to. You have a sign here. Meet us at the Python Dev Room. What's going on over there? Uh, it's a bad room. There is a lot of uh, presentation. No, I think there is a presentation of, uh, about uh, Python SQL will help uh, making SQL queries more easily. Okay. There are also uh, a few presentation about uh, the Python, also Python, and also about Python. So you have uh, several books here. Do you sell those, or the, uh, those no. just an example of? of it's just an example. It's just an example of books about Python. There are also books book available at already. Okay. How would you, if somebody was new, uh, new to programming, or you know, was wanted to get into pro Python programming, what's the best way to start? Depending on the person, uh, if the easier part is maybe making games. It's easier to, to start with games. You have a good feedback easily. There is spy games for starting. For other people we, that's already programming, there is uh, Learn Python the hard way. That is a great book. So one way of learning Python is through books and documentation, and the other one is by doing hands-on. Uh, there are many local Python communities where you can learn with other people that can help you. And um, Python is also quite useful using web frameworks. There are some that are really easy to use. So you can easily connect stuff you have running on your computer to uh, a web interface. Um, do, 
how would they how would I put connect sorry uh, doing web services with Python how, how was how does that work so there are many tiny web frameworks called cherry pie or flask or bottle or web to pie they are really easy to install some of them are just one file or one directory to drop in your project and then you can use everything that's in them some of them include a whole web server so you can just open your web browser and you have basically content generated from the app you've just written directly in your web browser. Okay, and these user groups, where could I find out? How do I get involved in the community? Uh, what is the advantages of getting involved in the Python community? Well, the main advantage is that you have people working with the same kind of things as you are. The same reason why people come to FOSDEM is that they learn about op other open source software they could use. When you're in a Python community, you learn about other Python libraries you can use, and there are plenty. You can check the website, uh, of the Python website. There is an index of all libraries that are uh, available for everyone to install, and there are tens of thousands of libraries. So you need you know, some filter, some recommendation on what to use to do something, and the community helps a lot. Okay, fantastic. Is there anything else coming up that uh, people should know about in the Python community? Well, with the new version of Python, uh, there is a lot of uh, work that has been done on asynchronous programming. So you can handle these tasks in a very easy and clear way, much better than, or subjectively much better than with JavaScript or threads. Okay, fantastic stuff. Thanks very much, guys, for uh, taking the time and enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. Thank you. at the Jenkins table talking to? I'm Kosuke Kawaguchi. So what are you doing here at FOSDEM? Um, so the Jenkins community has a large presence in Europe, so there's a lot of developers. So this is becoming a sort of tradition to gather and then sort of you know, greet and then try to evangelize about Jenkins to other people in the community. I have no idea what Jenkins is. Can you tell me a bit about it? Yes, yeah, so the Jenkins is uh, what's commonly called as a continuous integration server. The idea is it sort of helps developers by detecting regressions very quickly and notifying people. So as you're compiling code, you check it in and then it raises an error? Would that yeah, be so as the uh, people are committing changes, you know, sometimes people would cut corners and not always run the entire test suite. Or, you know, sometimes tests are too lengthy to run the whole thing. So what Jenkins does is it typically it monitors the changes in the source code repository, and it checks out the code and runs the build and test. And then tallies the report, so as soon as the regression gets introduced, within a few hours you get to you know, know that there are failure. And people turn up at your desk. <laughs> Sorry, say that again? Yeah, people yeah, exactly, turn up at your right. desk. Yeah. So, um, so t tell me, what, what's actually involved in setting up a Jenkins server and what sort of... Uh, programming languages and commit systems as a support. Uh, so um, the, one of the things that we spent a lot of effort on is to make it really easy to get started. So Jenkins itself is written as a Java web application, but we package it as a, you know, the Windows installer, Debian package, Red Hat packages, and so on. So typically all you have to do is like an app to get installed Jenkins, and then it's ready to run, and then everything else. What what license what license is it released yeah, under? The code is under the MIT license. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. app gets installed and then. Yeah, and then you get you get it running, and uh, from then on you can configure everything in the GUI. 
And in terms of the programming language and the environment that we support, um, that's another thing that's really great about Jenkins is that it's got this very active plugin ecosystem. So we have about um, 850 plugins that's written by people around the world, and you can install any one of them from the update center built inside Jenkins itself. What type of um, what type of plugin would that be? What would be a popular plugin? So, for example, one of the very popular plugins would be like a Git plugin, which basically enables Jenkins to download things from Git. Another popular plugin might be, say, uh, Active Directory plugin. You know, you got the, your corporate has the Active Directory as identity backend, so you want the users to be logging into Jenkins with a corporate username and password, so you can do that with Active Directory plugin. Yeah, or another popular plugin might be a Chuck Norris plugin, which basically shows... Whoa! Chuck Norris yes, plugin? That's, that's exactly right. So uh, it shows a funny Chuck Norris quote on the Jenkins UI, and if you break the build, he will be angry at you. So those little things that help bring people into the Jenkins. Nobody wants Chuck Norris on their ass. That's exactly right. Um, so um, what sort of tests can you do, and how do, how do I make checks? Right, so the most of the, the tests actually still need to be written by you, so unfortunately Jenkins doesn't write the test for you, but the, what Jenkins does is you know, the most test framework they are capable of producing output in machine-readable format, you know, like XML files. So you tell Jenkins where those reports are, and then Jenkins would go read them and they produce charts and basically understand what they are. So you can run JUnit or the PHP unit or CPP unit or whatever test format that's supported by Jenkins to work. That's fantastic. Is there anything, uh, you say this is kind of your European or is it global meetup time? Yeah. And how many developers are you, are involved in Jenkins? Um, so in the core, maybe there's a handful of active contributors. Um, and then if you look at the GitHub Jenkins organization, there are about 800 people registered as a member of the, I mean, the committer community. And then when we look at the, uh, the number of people who committed to the repository last year, there was more than 1,000 people. So it's a pretty active community. That's everyone scratching their little itch in their own plugin. That's sort of how it works in this. And it's all written in Java. It's all, yeah, it, most of them are in Java. There are also, you can also write plugins in Ruby to some extent. So there are maybe like a dozen or so plugins written in Ruby. But yeah, mostly in Java indeed. Okay. And is it quite easy to, do I, would I need to have an understanding of Java to, in order to be able to use it? Or is it, is it simpler than that? Yeah, so using it does not require any Java knowledge. But the writing plugin does involve some knowing some Java. You know, if 850 people manage to write plugins, I think it's probably not too hard. Yeah. Excellent. And do you have anything else coming up? Uh, do you work for CloudBee? Uh, yeah, what yeah. is the relationship, or is this? Um, so the CloudBee is, is a company that I'm involved in, and we have a number of services around Jenkins. So, for example, we have a hosted Jenkins as a service for people who are not interested in running their own instance. We can do that for you. Yeah. We, have, we also have um, enterprise plugins and a support subscription that's called uh, Jenkins Enterprise by CloudBee. So those are what we try to help you know, build around the Jenkins ecosystem. Is this your first time at Fostam, or you've been here loads of times uh, before? This is, I think, it's the fourth time. So I really enjoyed the atmosphere of the conference. So I've been here every single year now. 
It's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, isn't it? yeah, it's my first time. Okay, cool. And can I get one of these guys? Uh, I wish I could give it to you, but uh, no, no. A picture of the little guy will be in there. So. Where did you get the logo? Where did you come up with that? Oh, so, um, you know, the, um, we did a competition on the logo. We lost the original logo because, uh, well, anyway. So, um, yeah, so this is done by uh, one of the designers in Texas. He's a contributor of Jenkins Project itself, and uh, so he came up with this logo, and the community liked it. So, this is so just for our listeners, it uh, looks a little bit like a butler and I guess Jenkins is supposed to be a butler somebody who works for you in the background exactly and then right. brings to your attention some bad news yeah. if it should happen yeah. okay listen thank you very much KK for uh, the uh, interview and enjoy the rest of the show alright thank you very much Hi, this is Ken here on Mopas K2, and I'm talking to Bert and Eric from the Puppet Project. How are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So, you're from, Eric, you're from the um, Puppet Labs. That's right, I'm the product owner for Puppet. Okay, and you're from? Uh, I teach uh, Linux System Administration at uh, University College Ghent. So, um, to the people who don't work in system administration land, what is Puppet and what's it used for? So Puppet's a tool for automating changes that you might want to make to your systems. So instead of having to log on to systems individually and run the same commands over and over, uh, you could run Puppet on those systems, make a change once centrally, and Puppet takes care of distributing that out to all the machines. Um, okay, and this will be on a higher level than something like a, um, a Red Hat's thing. Well, there's lots of different com- there's lots of different config management tools. Um, like CFN. CFN. Puppet's Puppet's kind of unique and, and special because it has a, it builds a model of the resources that you're trying to manage on the system and actually models the dependencies in between those resources in a in a really powerful way. So if you say need to manage a Apache service, we can make sure that the package is installed, your config file is set up correctly, and the service is started up in the right order, and if the package fails to install, we're not going to blindly try to you know, restart the service over and over because it just doesn't exist. So Puppet builds a model internally and then walk, walks that as if it was a, a, a graph. And you would have support for different types of operating systems, is that correct? Yep, runs on all kinds of operating systems, runs on uh, all Linux variants, commercial Unix, and uh, Windows. Okay, we've had some interviews with people uh, from the CF Engine project before, and they have a, a philosophy, a view of bringing consistency in, and they, how would, that, how would you compare uh, your approach to CF Engine's yeah, well, they're somewhat similar in the sense that uh, um, CF Engine also um, get built, you know, builds a list of the things that you're trying to manage on the systems. One of the main differences is that the CF Engine model is autonomous. Each of the systems decides for itself, reads the configuration, decides for itself how it ought to work. And in the Puppet's model, uh, although Puppet can run individually on a machine, you don't need a client-server model. Mostly, people run it in client-server mode, where the Clients submit the information that they know about themselves, what operating system they are, what their kernel version is, into the master, and the master makes decisions on it and returns them a pre-compiled uh, description of what their state ought to look like, rather than the machine going through and doing all this computation independently and, there, and therefore requiring access to the entire configuration in order to figure out what it ought to look like. All of that logic is done on the master, and the agents only ever see uh, a 
uh, representation of what their state ought to be. So all of the stuff about what the other systems look like, all the other branches that weren't walked as it was as we were compiling that catalog, don't ever make it onto the client. So that provides a nice nice security model as well as the data transfer over the network works out uh, works out to be a lot. Um, a lot smoother than the having to manage pushing out configuration individually to the machines. Is there a, is there a functionality to recover from um, errors in config files uh, as time goes along? Say a config file gets corrupt by an admin logging in on the machine itself. Is there an ability to push down fixes? Sure. Uh, you, oh, you mean if, if the Puppet's configuration itself gets corrupted? Or somebody logs on to server, web server 1 and then adds a new virtual host and makes a typo rather than uh, controlling it centrally. Uh, yeah, so absolutely. And, and that we kind of generally call that drift remediation. Like people making changes on the systems manually is drift from what the desired state is, from what, they're, what they ought to look like. And absolutely, Puppet uh, has a really intelligent set of algorithms for figuring out whether the system as it exists on, you know, in the, on the, whether, whether the state as it exists on the running system is it, the way it's supposed to be or not, and then bring in line if, it, if, it's, if it's out of line. Okay, cool. Um, so you're, what sort of license is it released under? It's all Apache licensed. Okay. And you're the Belgian Puppet uh, user group, so what's, what's the benefit of having a user group at all? Uh, yeah, sure. So we uh, we started last year, about a year ago, and um, yeah, we meet every now and then, uh, every month, every two months, uh, with a couple of people that are using uh, uh, puppets or starting to use puppets, and we exchange uh, experiences, uh, talk about uh, what we've learned and uh, where we have uh, still have uh, some troubles. So we exchange information and uh, yeah, uh, get better. And how do you make a, how do you make a profit on uh, on this open source system? Yeah, so Puppet um, Puppet Labs manages uh, a bunch of open source projects. We bundle those pro- projects up into one commercial product, which is Puppet Enterprise. And Puppet Enterprise not only has like long term support and stability, has a great uh, performance tuned uh, installation out of the box rather than having to cobble together this this sort of really you know, pretty complicated stack of the right Ruby version, the right web server. Uh, we put all that together, make it so it's super easy to install. It's highly scalable, and we provide long-term support for that for that platform and get it running on uh, on the, the main target operating systems that our, our uh, enterprise users care about. So in addition to all of that, there are some cool uh, value-added features that are only available in Puppet Enterprise, some uh, more GUI functionality for helping... Um, Plus, advanced system administrators get started really easily and, and consume uh, pre-made content on the Forge, uh, which is our community site, uh, it, and use that to configure the systems instead of having to write everything from scratch. And is that released under proprietary licensed? Puppet Enterprise is uh, well; it's a so- renewable uh, yearly software license, so it's not it's uh, not open source. Most most of the most of the projects are. Dual li- or dual license in the sense that you pay us for a, so- a software license to continue to use Puppet Enterprise for a year. Yeah. Um, so, what's uh, what's coming up in the in the near future? Oh, there's lots of great stuff coming out. Um, one of the um, uh, speaking specifically about. Um, 
Puppet Enterprise, we've completely revamped the uh, installation mechanism for the next version that'll be out in March. There's uh, so to make it really easy to to build a scaled out installation uh, right from the start. Um, there's a bunch of stuff in the individual projects, that, the open source stuff upstream that uh, have been moving really fast. You have a lot of great uh, new innovations that have come out, like a new parser and evaluator for the language that's, that's uh, way more powerful and flexible and also faster. Um, we have uh, structured fax support, so you can have rich data structures that are returned up from your agents. So instead of having to have an individual fact for each one of the network interfaces, say, all those interfaces get bundled together in a big uh, nested uh, hash that is keyed off the interface name, so it makes it a lot easier to get at, your, get at the data around them. So what do you call them, facts or facts? Yeah, facts. Yeah, so, the, so a fact is a little bit of information about the system that, that uh, as I said at the beginning of the, that life cycle, the, the clients discover all the facts about themselves yep. with a program called Factor, F-A-C-T-E-R. It's kind of like a little pun, I guess. Uh, a very little pun. Um, but, uh, yeah, then, then all those facts are things that either systems administrators write themselves in order to, uh, say, teach factor about their application and about how their systems are configured or just are generically available uh, and synced down to the agents for modules that you download or are included in factor out of the box. Okay. So I guess this, the whole point of this is somebody gets a rack of new servers in and you turn them on and it pixie boots and then you should be able to auto-deploy them. Is that sort of what your budget Yeah, yeah. Everything, everything after. I mean, Puppet squarely aimed like everything after that base OS installation gets on. Uh, the, the, the what what needs to change on the systems in order to make it so that you can actually get some value out of them. Yeah. Okay, cool. Listen, guys, thank you very much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, if ever you want to come back or do your own show on Hacker Public Radio, feel free to do so. Sure. Cool. Thank you. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.